who knew that you buying a bag of cinnamon rolls would lead you here to the studio? <laughs> Amazing cinnamon rolls. Let's get it. Let's get the facts out there. Was that your first time trying them? No, I've, I've had them before. It was oh, okay. the first time of me coming here to pick them up. But oh yeah, um, I was a connoisseur. So to oh speak. yeah. <laughs> Usually, send other people to get them for <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I was in the fire service, you know. Yeah. Uh, they were popular. So. Oh, were they? Yeah. 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 They are so good. Yeah. So heavy. <laughs> So worth it. They are. So worth it. Yeah. They are. I love them with a cup of coffee, yes. especially on the weekends. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And if you're wondering what we're talking about, it's the Copper Creek cookie <laughs> cinnamon roll. It's the best. That's how me and Jeremy met. Yep. We got into talking and- It was fate. It was, yeah. it was sugar fate. It was sugar fate, yeah. <laughs> Bonding over some sugar. Yeah. Yeah. So let's tell the viewers and listeners who you are. Uh, my name is Jeremy Beatty. I'm a retired fire captain. Um did 22 years in the fire service, retired. Thank you for your service. Yeah, I appreciate that. that. Dangerous and then, job. Uh, I took a job as a flight paramedic on a helicopter. I did that for just under four years and then uh, left that in May. Um, my wife and I have a couple of hardware stores here mm-hmm. locally. Um, her parents and her started that about 30 years ago. Wow. Yeah, time flies. Um, just 30 years ago? Just 30 years ago. <laughs> no big deal. Uh, and then uh, I started a woodworking company. Okay. Um, and uh, that's really been mostly for the purpose of therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just really done a lot of positive things for me. And um, it's some really amazing people and just really enjoy it. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, man. So 30 years here in the local community doing stuff. And then you got your own woodworking shop. But all those years in the fire service, man, that's that's a long time. It is, you know, and I was very fortunate that I started my career young, which enabled me to retire young. How old were you when you started? I was 19. Nice. Uh, oh, so, you retired yeah. pretty early, man. So I retired when I was 42. Oh. Uh, you know, it's just, I got a lot of friends that hate on me all the time for that. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I mean. They're at work right now, actually. <laughs> gosh, 40, 42. Yeah. You know, so I, when I started my law enforcement journey, uh, I started at 21, and but I was working for the state. And then I moved to, so I was in corrections and okay. then I moved yeah, to this, yeah. to the streets. And when I moved to the streets, the retirements were completely different. Mm. And, uh, they started at, they, they made it where it's 25 years instead of the, yeah. the 20. I originally, if I'd have stayed in corrections, I'd have been done at, at 41, yeah. but I could have been like you. Well, the system here has changed <laughs> but I did uh, not. multiple times since I've started. And yeah. now I think it's, I think last I heard it is 25 and now there's an age requirement that you have to hit before you can even start drawing. Yeah. So I was under the old system thinking, mm-hmm. <laughs> thankful yeah. for that. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a, you know, long time. Um, it's a great career, you know, just being able to really impact people's lives and, and you know, just do some amazing things that most people never get to experience. So um, thankful for the career, you know, comes at a cost, obviously, you know, seeing some of them most unimaginable things that, you know, most people can't even just comprehend. So yeah. over time that just adds up. And so it comes at a cost, but, you know, I'm thankful for the career. It's provided a nice life for our family. And, yeah. um, you know, just the, the gratification of being able to give back and and truly impact somebody's life in real time. So yeah. Well, just, you're saving uh, lives. Yeah, we try. You, you try. <laughs> yeah, the best the best yeah, you can. for sure. So the the first thing, the 22 years, what, were, <laughs> what kind of assignment were you doing then? Um, for par- obviously for part of my career as a firefighter. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I became a paramedic 26 years ago. Uh, and then, so the fire service here is kind of different than a lot of fire service, you know, back East or Midwest here. Um, we tra- cross train. So we're medical professionals as well as firefighters. Mm-hmm. 
most agencies in, in this region uh, operate their own ambulance company. It's a, it's a source of revenue for their operation. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I became a paramedic and uh, promoted pretty quick um, and promoted to the rank of captain. And I was just gung-ho. I mean, I, I always told everybody the fire service for me was never a job. It was a lifestyle. I mean, it was just who I was. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to be a firefighter since I was eight. Yeah. And uh, it was just the best job I could ever imagine having. Um, so I promoted through the ranks, you know, promoted to captain and then got really involved in education. I loved to teach. Um, I became well-versed in technical rescue and went through the process and became a, an instructor for the state and for the college. Wow. And so I taught tons of rope rescue and um, taught officer classes, taught leadership classes, taught all fire service stuff. And one of the interesting things, yeah, you ever go to the classes and like, all right, tell us something that no one would ever know about you. Yeah. Uh, I love that question because um, I used to teach puppetry. Hold on. <laughs> People see me. Did I'm I hear that right? Guy. You teach puppetry. Um, uh, you can't see it with my shirt on, but I'm tattooed, and uh, yeah, I used to teach puppetry. No kidding. True story. Uh, I don't have a van. <laughs> no, no reason to panic. Um, I used to teach puppetry at a puppet and clown conference that happened every year in Laughlin, and it was run by um, Arizona Fire Burn Educators. Okay. And so all the puppetry and clowning stuff that we would do was related to fire service and fire prevention. Mm-hmm. So we used to do these huge productions at some of the elementary schools during uh, fire prevention week in October. Oh, that's cool. And so we would write the skits. We would build the set. We would, you know, have rehearsed. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty wow. legit thing. And uh, this conference was a week long, and we had people from Fraggle Rock come down, and they would help teach. We had uh, clowns from uh, Barnum and Bailey Circus Company. Mm-hmm. They came down and participated in teaching, and it was all firefighters from all over the country, and uh, it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. But yeah, <laughs> I have to show pictures to people because most people are like, "There's no way." I was like, "No, I swear." Wow. I used to teach puppetry. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow! So, are you good at with with? I didn't do ventriloquism. No, no. ventriloquism. No. Okay, just the puppetry. No. I eat crayons. I was a fireman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that talented. <laughs> I can break a door open, but uh, yeah. I just can't do it. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah that, uh, I remember that. It's like in the academy and stuff. And they're like, what did you do? So I actually am a musician and rapper. Nice. I did it for a long time. I still do it. I mean, the music scene's kind of a lot different than it was a couple <laughs> years ago. Kind of, I don't know what's going to happen with it, but yeah. um but yeah, yeah, man, that's really cool. I would have never guessed that. So yeah. cool. thanks for sharing that with us. It's I really used to have this portable stage that I would wear as a backpack. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'd go around. Yeah, it's. Uh, I look at pictures now. I'm just like, oh. <laughs> but it's cool though. You you, yeah. you got you got to engage with schools yeah. and the kids and yeah. did some clowning. That was fun. Yeah. So you dressed up. Yep. Red nose. Yeah. Dang. Well, we had different. So our shows were, you know, kind of created out of what was popular at the time. Yeah. So for example, we did one that was. Um, Pirates of Safety Island. You know, that came out when Pirates of the Caribbean was popular. Pirates of Safety Island. Yep. That's so cool. And then so we all dressed up as pirates. And, yeah. you know, the whole show is based on fire safety and, you know, those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Um, we did uh, The Wizard of Cause. So <laughs> yes. I, prepare yourself. I was an Oompa Loompa. <laughs> How tall are you? <laughs> I'm six foot three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're an Oompa Loompa, what am I? Oh, man. I'm five foot it seven. It was, uh, you know, it was just a lot of fun. It wow. was, it was such a great time. Um, I would, for me personally, I'd have to say the highlight of my career was probably uh, running the fire academy. That was, um, I just have a real passion for teaching and 
being able to take a civilian from the beginning and teach them the knowledge and the, and the skills they need to be successful and then see them out on the trucks doing the job is just, there's just no, no feeling like it. And yeah. um, I even got to teach my dad. My dad applied for the fire academy and got in, and I was the, I was the the coordinator of the program. So for six wow. months, he had to call me sir. And <laughs> Holy cow! It was uh, it was interesting in the beginning, but once we found our groove, uh, it was amazing. Yeah. So, so regarding the the academy and stuff, were you? So <clears throat> when I was in the academy, we had the the class officers and the sergeants and all the way up, and they would often wear those hats. The, we call them the Smokey the Bear hats. Mm-hmm. Where did you ever go out and? Wear something like that, or were you the one of the people that got in people's faces? And no, um, I, I kind of have a different school of thought on running academies. You know, I think there's a pretty big difference between law enforcement and fire service. Mm-hmm. You know, um, usually nobody's shooting at us. <laughs> I won't say always, but um, so I think the thought process, at least in my opinion, is is different. Mm-hmm. Um, I ran a strict program, but I, I don't believe in the school of um, you know, breaking somebody down to build them up. I just don't think it's necessary. I think there's yeah. other ways. I think those techniques have a place. Yeah. I think they're successful, and I think there's certain situations where they're beneficial. Mm-hmm. For the programs that I was trying to teach, I just didn't feel like it was a good fit. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I was a drill instructor when I had to be. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, you know, we're just, we want them to be successful. Mm-hmm. And um, we want them to assimilate into the fire service well. And, you know, it's very still paramilitary because we have to have that structure. Yeah. If if we're fighting a house fire, I need you to follow orders. I yeah. don't have time to explain to you why I need you to vent the roof. I need you to go do the job. That's and, true. And, and that, so in that aspect, you kind of have to marry the two and just find a balance. And yeah. It's easier said than done sometimes. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, the, the great thing about the paramilitary thing, too, is it really helps people to <clears throat> fine-tune little things. Yeah, absolutely. Because you probably agree with me, Jeremy, that if you continue to do the little things wrong, something big is going to happen. One of the things I used to always teach is um, the deaths are in the details. Yeah. You know, and and there's so many things going on in the law enforcement environment and the fire service environment, mm-hmm. you know, in that emergent situation, it's very easy to become overloaded. Mm-hmm. You know, your sensories, your you know, your emotions, everything is just overloaded because it's, it's, you know, it's an emergency. That's yeah. why, that's why we're called. And if we don't teach ourselves and we don't teach our, our partners and students to manage that mm-hmm. and to be able to focus on the details, that's when bad things happen. You mm-hmm. know, law enforcement, people get shot, mm-hmm. um, fire service, you know, people die. Yeah. Um, details important. And, you know, we call it moth to the flame syndrome. You know, the fire service, you know, you take a new, a new firefighter to a fire mm-hmm. and they see a fire. They don't see anything else. Just <laughs> Nothing. Bam, right here. Everything they don't else see anything like else. Vision. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's normal. Mm-hmm. And so different positions have to manage those situations differently. So as a captain, for example, if I'm taking a crew in and I know I have somebody new, I surround them with experienced people to help manage the situation and manage their emotions because in the beginning they're not able to. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a learned skill. But the details – are by far the most important thing. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Stress inoculation can really oh, man. pull you away from what's yeah. going on. But that's why like somebody like you <clears throat> has to be there because you're somebody in leadership like you, you're looking at a whole big picture that yeah. most people are not even considering at the right. time. 
and you're you're in charge of the logistics and sure. all kinds of lives and everything going on. So yeah, it's a really important role that you have. You know, and a lot of that comes with experience. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you've already gone down the path of making some of those mistakes, mm-hmm. and you know, you've you've um, attached on to some great leaders in your eyes, mm-hmm. and you've kind of blended all their tactics and techniques together to to create your own. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really think you have to get over the hump and g- gain the necessary experience to be successful in any one of those roles mm-hmm. um, to make good decisions and be able to have, you know, the 30,000 foot view versus the 3,000 foot view. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm if I'm running a fire scene, I'm looking at the structure. I'm looking at the roof. I'm looking at the smoke conditions. I'm looking at the surroundings. I'm looking at like our water situation. Mm-hmm. You know, the firefighter's looking at it's on fire. I have a hose. I need to go spray water, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. which is a normal thing. Yeah. Um, and then as they gain experience, they start opening their eyes to little things. And, you know, it's just part of the process. I'm sure it's the same in law enforcement or any other mm-hmm. occupation yeah. for that matter. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, having quality leadership in situations like that is definitely a difference maker for sure. Uh, I like to think that I was a, a good leader. I mean, I'm not without fault. I certainly made my mistakes and tried to learn from them and try to teach everybody else from those mistakes. But, yeah. you know, um, I was a student of the field for sure, and I always was trying to to learn new things and see different perspectives that I, you know, otherwise wouldn't have. Yeah. You know, working in a career field like you, like you did, things add up over time, especially with the amount of time you did. And sometimes it causes problems in our day-to-day routines starts affecting our minds in ways that we would have never expected it to and can lead to nightmares that happen frequently. Um, and a lot of, I think a lot of people experience this kind of stuff. And I think a lot of people too still have a hard time talking about those kind of nightmares and the visions and the stuff that they're feeling. And we do know that there is a term for it. And, you know, Jeremy, I'm going to let you kind of, take us down this road and yeah. talk about this stuff. Cause it, it's a big part of why you're here and we want people to feel okay. Talking about that stuff, sure. sharing it, being vulnerable. Right. It's okay to, to take the wall down, to take, take everything aside. You put everything aside and kind of just talk about how you're feeling. So, um, and we had this conversation when we were here in the venue, when you were picking up stuff, we were talking about things that you experienced and you know things that I could, I was like, I can relate to you in some ways. So, Let's talk about PTSD. You know, um, <clears throat> when I started my fire service career back then, it was very macho, very masculine. Mm-hmm. You know, not to say there wasn't, you know, females in the fire service. You know, that's, you know, that that came, you know, and started filling the ranks. And and there was, you know, on that note, there were some amazing female firefighters. You know, I would put against any male firefighter yeah, every day sure. of the week. For sure. Um, but back then, you know, emotions, um, things like PTSD, or if you're having trouble with a call, it was very taboo to even mention. You know, it was viewed as a sign of weakness, um, and you never wanted to be that person. Yeah. You know, and when you're surrounded by, you know, people with type A personalities, they're very alpha, and mm-hmm. you know, you wanna, you don't want to be the weak link. You want to be an alpha. Um, you know, you want to be the guy or girl running in and burning buildings and pulling people out, you know, that's the, that's, that's the dream, right? Yeah. So in the beginning and, and really for the better part of my career, it was a very taboo subject. And, 
And we're just now starting to, to really realize how bad it is. You know, and it's not that it's become that bad. It's mm-hmm. always been that bad. We just didn't address it or we didn't have those conversations. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and not being able to have those conversations or not feel like I could have that conversation um, really led me down a dangerous path. Um, you know, in, in, in 22 years in, uh, in the fire service, you see a lot of bad things, just, just like in law enforcement. You know, um, I think hospitals see a lot of bad stuff. I just mm-hmm. think it's different because they're not dealing with the seeing emotions. You're not dealing with the family members in the moment. Yeah. Um, I just think, you know, there's tragedy on both sides and they're just different. Mm-hmm. Um, in the emergency world, you know, you're out in the middle of the highway at two in the morning, you know, having to uh, pick up the body of a child, you know, who's dead. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, having to use a shovel to pick up some of their, you know, the brain matter that, you know, mm-hmm. it has to be picked up. Yeah. And, you know, I think those jobs really take a special type of person. I, I certainly don't think anybody could do it. Yeah, I would agree I, with I you I think on it that, takes a special me? person. Yeah. And, and then people that can't do it, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a big proponent of let's put people in position where they're going to do well. Yeah. Um, you know, playing on their strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And I think in the fire service or emergency services, uh, it's not for everybody. Not mm-hmm. everybody can stomach that. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got a buddy that uh, if he sees blood, passes out. Yeah. I, every time, 100%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, of course, as a buddy, you know, we, we play on that. Yeah. Um, obviously, he couldn't do that, you know. Um, but we start stacking trauma, you know, and it's normal to have the emotions of being affected by those things. They're difficult. Mm-hmm. There's... I could never even imagine to count the number of times that I've cried after a call, you know? And for a long time, I'd find my dark corner where no one was around because I didn't want anybody to know, you know, um, when you have a traumatic incident and it doesn't even have to be a death. It can just mm-hmm. be something else that triggers a, some kind of emotion in, in, in you. Yeah. It may not affect the other three people, but mm-hmm. to you, whatever it was about the situation triggered an emotion and you're, you're eliciting a, a, an emotional response. Um, and it's hard and it's hard to know who to talk about those things. I never talked about it with my wife because it's bad enough. I had to go through it. I don't want her to go through it. Yeah. You, I'm glad you bring that up because you know, when I was, when I was working in law enforcement, my wife was always like, how come you won't share what's going on inside? How come you won't talk about what you saw? And that's the, I had the same thought as you is I don't want to bring them into that. Do you yeah. re- like, I would be like, if I told you that you, it ruined your day. Cause then you'd be stuck thinking about it. Yeah. And so, yeah. I had, uh, a very traumatic call, um, early on in my career. Uh, a young, a young boy was, was killed, you know, um, pretty viciously. Mm-hmm. And, um, that particular call now is my number one nightmare. And that was, you know, over 20 years ago. And at the time of the incident, the, the, the child was the same age as my oldest son mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you see these things and you just think to yourself, how is this even possible? You know, it, it's difficult to process, you know, even for the most experienced person. 
But then I had a personal connection because my son was the same age as this kid. So mm-hmm. then, of course, as a, as a father, I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, my gosh, what, what if this was my son? Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> you start going through that emotion. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we, we went through some debriefing after that call, as we did with many calls before that, to, you know, just kind of get a pulse check and make sure he's doing okay. Mm-hmm. And it was the typical, most of the firefighters didn't want to participate because they're not, they're fine. Like, I don't need that. That stuff's yeah. for people who are weak. Um, and I didn't really think a lot about it until years later where it was like someone walked in a room, turned on a light switch, and I started having nightmares just randomly. Mm-hmm. Nothing that I could really think of triggered it. It just started happening. And it got so bad to where every time I would close my eyes, I'd have a nightmare. And I'd have the same nightmare over and over watching this kid get killed. Every detail, every smell, every aspect of that that call was in my nightmare. But in my nightmare, it was my son. So every time I sleep, I'm watching my son die. Over and over and over and over. And it's, it's difficult to know how to deal with that. You know, as, as a normal person, you, you know, logically, it's not real. It's a nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. You know that it's not your son. Your son's sleeping in the next room. Um, you know, you just, your brain just tries to process it differently. It gets your heart rate and everything going. Oh, I'd wake up screaming, crying, yeah. drenched in sweat. And so then it got to the point where I was literally afraid to sleep because I, I just couldn't see it again. And so then I would do whatever I could to, to not sleep. I would caffeinate like, <laughs> like it was my religion. <laughs> and uh, then I get fatigued, and then I get exhausted. And then that just compounds the nightmares. That compounds all the other emotions that, that um, makes it so you're not able to think logically. Mm. You know, it, it triggers this whole other path that only makes the situation worse. Yeah. And <clears throat> I was getting really sick. And I didn't know it. You know, I view myself as a really strong person. You know, I've been through a lot of things in my life that um, I've had to overcome. And I think in the fire service, I was viewed as the strong leader. Like, you know, if I have an issue, I can go to Captain Beatty. I can, you know, trust his decisions on these calls and whatever. You know, again, I'm not without fault. I had, I was not perfect by any means, but I do feel like I was good at my job. Mm Mm-hmm. And I started getting sick, and I started getting worse, and I just didn't know it because I just wasn't thinking logically. And uh, so some things that happened where I had worked and I had left, and um, I hated the fire service. I hated it. I hated everything it stood for. I hated, you know, the people that I felt like turned their backs on me. You know, it was just all these things. And so I got uh, a position at a different agency, and I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go to work, um, you know, but I got a family to feed. And I got bills to pay, and that was my craft. So I would drive to work every day. I'd have to pull over at, between my house and the station and just cry because I didn't want to put that uniform on. I didn't want to get on the truck. Yeah. And I just mentally had checked out and did not realize how sick I was getting or the path that I was on. Mm-hmm. And in January of 2011, I had gotten off shift and, you know, I'm just tired and 
uh, I've got all these things going on and these nightmares going on. And I'm driving home and I'm thinking to myself, like, what am I going to do? And for whatever reason, it just became crystal clear what I needed to do. And so I'm driving home. And in my brain, I'm telling myself that if I want to be a good father, if I want to be a good captain, if I want to be a good person and a good leader and all these things that I aspire to be, mm-hmm. I need to kill myself. Like in the moment, it made complete sense. And I was like, it was like you're searching so long for a solution and then you find a solution. You're like, oh, finally, there's the solution. That's what I need to do. You know, what What you're covering <clears> is <throat> – the information a lot of people will ask when somebody decides to to yeah. end their life why what were they feeling what did what what caused them to feel that way and think that way yeah and you've covered that it was all these nights of not sleeping and, and the dreading of going and and doing the job with all that weight and no sleep and fatigue yeah. the sickness it's heavy, you know, yeah. and, and I never understood it until I experienced it. And then after my, my episode, I looked at things differently, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, that morning I went home mm-hmm. and I got into my safe. I was the only person home and I went in my closet and I put a gun in my mouth and I pulled the trigger and it misfired. The, the, the primer on the cartridge was struck, just didn't fire. You know, and when that click happened and it didn't fire, it was like someone came in and brushed all the clouds away and I could see everything clearly. And I just started to shake and cry and I was like, what did I just do? What did I just do? And I sat in my closet for several hours just crying and just in in shock of what had just transpired. And... My wife got home and I told her what happened and I went and got treatment and <laughs> the very first visit, you know, the she's like, you have the worst case of PTSD I've seen in 30 years. And I immediately was like, no, 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 I don't, I, I don't have PTSD. That's for soldiers. Yeah. That's for the, the military veterans. Mm-hmm. Those guys, you know, <laughs> the things they do, they got PTSD mm-hmm. because that was always the 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 tie for me to PTSD was military. Yeah. You know? Um, and then I started to learn that, you know, the average person can have PTSD. It's just a traumatic incident that happens yeah. that affects them. That's true. It's very uh, true. So it doesn't matter if they're in emergency services or just, you know, a soccer mom that had some traumatic event happen. Yeah. Um, so I got diagnosed and I went through treatment <clears throat> and, um, you know, started getting better and it was a process and it's, you know, that was in 2011, and here we are, 2022, and it's still a process. Mm-hmm. You know, I still have nightmares, and I still have to deal with this. My family still has to deal with this, and mm-hmm. you know, it's it's never, it's never going to go away. You know, um, but since then, I've I've learned how to manage it better. I've learned how to recognize the signs of, you know, the path I'm on, so that I can change it, so that I don't go down that same road. Mm-hmm. Um, and after I got better. I really started to push as much as I could to teach about how we can prevent this from happening again because it happens too much. Yeah. You know, there's there's so many people in the fire service and law enforcement that are committing suicide mm-hmm. every year. Mm-hmm. That number is substantially higher than the number 
of those people that die in the line of duty. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's just, and it, it blows my mind when I'm talking with an agency and they say, we don't have that issue here. <laughs> yes, you do. You just refuse to either acknowledge it or you're not recognizing it. And um, one of the things that I had to do before I started teaching was to, to kind of say what happened to the people that I worked with because at the time, nobody knew. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of just needed to come clean, so to speak, so that I could move on this path of spreading the word so that it doesn't happen again. This is not something I'm proud of. You know, this is, uh, it's not something I like talking about. It's not something that, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I did this. And, you know, it's just, it's, I'm ashamed of it. Mm -hmm. But if I can tell my story and it prevents one single person from going down that path, I will do this to the day I die. My shame is not that great where I can't try to save somebody else from doing the same thing. Um, so I started talking about, you know, mental health and everything else, and I started getting the typical responses of, you know, well, some people are just too weak for this job. They're not strong enough. They're not this. Mm-hmm. The normal response that I expected. Like, okay, and I'm just letting it come. Like, all right, come on. And then so I kind of just posed the question of, you know, how do you view me? Do you think I'm a strong person? And, you know, the people in the, at that time, I had trained many of them in different aspects. And, you know, some people are like, yeah, you're, you know, you're a strong captain. You're, you know, all mm-hmm. these things. And then I told them what happened. And everybody just was in shock. I bet. And I just, I said, I had every single textbook symptom of mm-hmm. PTSD. And I went around the room and I pointed to every single person. And I said, you missed it. You missed it. You missed it, and I should be dead. You know, and it, it it's a difficult thing to process. It's a difficult culture to change. Um, I am happy to say that the fire service and I believe law enforcement is is changing that culture to to more like, hey, <laughs> this is a real deal, mm-hmm. and we need to start getting a hold of this so yeah. we can prevent this. Uh, which is amazing. You know, I'm so thankful that the culture is changing in, in both of those fields mm-hmm. because it's needed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is just the beginning. There's so many more changes that need to happen because these people are being put in a situation where they're just overwhelmed with all this tragedy. You can only hold so much. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you, you know, you talk about the part where they're like, oh, you, you know, you got to be strong to do, to do this job and all that. Well, you can't do the job forever. So the real dark time starts when... You don't have the job and all you have is time to think about what you did and what happened. Yeah. I've heard a lot of stories about, you know, law enforcement and military and, and fire service individuals who finish their stint or their career and then they don't last long after that. Maybe one or two years into retirement. Yeah. And then it's like they were really healthy while they were doing the job, they were doing great, and then once they're out of it, it's like, Well, what's happening? Why why are they why is their health going so bad so quick yeah. afterwards? It's got to be something else, right? And, you know, from what I'm gathering and what I'm seeing, it would make sense that it's their mind and what's going on in there. Because look at how powerful it was to you, right? Your mind convinced you that the best thing to do to deal with what you were going through was to kill yourself. Right. Right. 
that's not reasonable for someone, no. to, a normal yeah. person yeah. at all. It's definitely not yeah. to, 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 to feel that way or to, to think that that's the solution. So, yeah. you know, it's, if you could go back, what's something that you would want to see implemented inside of a fire agency to kind of combat this? You know, one of the, one of the key factors in that contribute to this, you know, stigma and this culture of, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to talk about this is fear. You know, I can't speak for law enforcement cause I, I'm not, you know, from that world, but in the fire service, in my experience, it's fear. People are afraid to, to deal with those issues. I'll give you an example. You know, people ask me all the time, well, what could we have done? How could we have prevented this? And, and I would list an example where I had, you know, somebody come up and say, you know, hey, are you doing okay? And I looked them square in the face and said, no, I, I'm not doing okay. And their response was, well, if you need anything, let me know. And in my brain, I'm going, didn't I just do that? Yeah. <laughs> and and most people don't know how to handle that situation. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you have a close friend moving, for example. Mm-hmm. You want to offer to help them move because you're a friend, but you really hope when they say no, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, it's yeah. kind of the same context. Oh, yeah. Where, yeah. you know, they're asking if you're okay. Clearly, they can see that you're not okay. Mm-hmm. They feel obligated to ask, so they ask, and they're really hoping that they don't have to go past that because they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And and I can't speak for everybody's situation because everybody needs different things. Everybody's mm-hmm. situation is different. But in my situation, if I had one single person that would have taken the time to intervene, I believe 100% I would have not gotten to my closet. Mm-hmm. I would not have gotten to that path. Yeah. And I could have gotten help and treatment before any of that transpired. And um, that's easier said than done. You know, what do you say when someone's like, no, I, like, I think I'm going to kill myself? The average person, they're like, I, yeah, I don't, know what to do. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Yeah. And it's complicated. But, you know, um, some of the worst things that happened in, in those times for me was lack of follow through. You know, I'd have people who um, look out for you or care for you, whatever you want to word it. And um, yeah, if you need anything, call me. You call mm-hmm. them, they don't show. You know, um, the lack of follow through was so detrimental to my situation that really drove me faster to, to getting to that point where I was done. Um, you know, I think the best thing you can do in that situation is to be there, be present. There's nothing more important than that moment right there mm-hmm. because that one moment, that one interaction may be the last interaction, the last chance you have to save that person's life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's a challenge. And, and if you don't know what to do, that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's a difficult position to be in. But don't abandon them. You know you know what? I'm not sure how to handle this. I'm going to be here with you. Let's, let's get some – resources involved and let's, yeah. let's get you better, mm-hmm. you know, and that's all it takes. I'm not asking you to solve my problem. You're not a psychologist. Yeah. You're not a doctor. You're not whatever. I just need help. Yeah. And, and I, that's another thing too. You bring up, um, the solving the problem <clears throat> thing. Cause I think just based on your career field and in, in mine too, we get called to solve problems, whether it be, yeah, we're <laughs> fixers, right? Yeah. So when that kind of stuff pops up, I think it's just natural for people in the, in that career field to, well, how am I going to solve this? And if they can't, they don't want to do any, they don't want to have anything to do yeah. with it because that 
how do you solve that? Right. And it's, yeah, it's a hard thing to deal with, with somebody. There's people to this day that, you know, I don't associate with regularly. I, I would, we're more acquaintances. Yeah. I wouldn't, you know, and I've had some of them reach out to me in the middle of the night because they're struggling. I drop whatever I'm doing and I'll go. If they're in another state, I'll figure it out because that's what I needed. And yeah. I'm not going to miss that opportunity if it's presented. Mm-hmm. You know, is it inconvenient? Sure. Do I want to go somewhere in the middle of the night and, and help somebody through this problem when I'm still struggling? Mm-hmm. Of course not. But, you know, that's a commitment that I make because it matters. And that's what I needed and that's what I try to be for, you know, those that reach out. And I just really encourage anybody that's struggling with anything, regardless of your emergency services or whatever, reach out. Yeah. It is Look, I'm a big dude. You know, I feel like I'm tough. I feel like I'm strong, but I am emotional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think every person is emotional. Mm-hmm. They're just afraid to acknowledge that and let it out. Yeah. Um, I mean, I cry at commercials for crying out loud. <laughs> you know? Hey, I've been, I've had some yeah. pull on the heartstrings those, for sure. And those troops coming home get me every time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, I don't even know where I was going with that. I got, got sidetracked <laughs> with the commercials. <laughs> Uh, oh, showing the emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to not be afraid to, to accept the fact that there's going to be times in your life that you're not doing okay, and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's, we've all heard it. It's okay to not be okay. But to take that one step further, if you're not okay, it's also okay to get help. Mm-hmm. There's so many resources out there mm-hmm. that are available, and many of these resources can be at no cost to you. Yeah. You know, um, it can be a pastor, it can be a close friend, it could be whatever it is that you need. Mm-hmm. Ask for help. It's it's not a sign of weakness. It takes more strength to recognize a situation and ask for help than it does to be strong enough to just move past it. Yeah. Uh, it takes a tremendous amount of courage, a tremendous amount of strength to ask for help. Um, you have to put for your sure. pride aside. You have to put everything aside because in that moment, if you need help, ask for it. I promise you the people around you want to help you, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, it's just so important. You just have to be able to, you know, take a step back for a minute and just realize I'm not doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to piggyback off that too. And I think that people should make a conscious effort to look at how people are around them and ask how they are like with intent, like, you know, how are you doing? Check in on them. Check your people. I mean, look and see the habits. Watch their habits. Look for those indicators. Although they might be small at the time, it could be the beginning of something that's going to be really bad. And uh, I think that, you know, we should all get better just as a society in general, too, at at seeing that. Because, you know, in the line of work that we were in, I'm sure you came across it, too, where you'd hear family going, "I I I don't know why this happened. I had no idea that this was going to happen. Right. And it's like, you might not have an idea, but there was stuff that was happening that maybe you just ignored or you didn't want to deal with because you were scared. Like you said, right? right? Like, ah, that, not my, not my kid, you know, teenagers right now are are taking their lives that no numbers that are, that we've never seen. And they're, they're ODing, they're overdosing on drugs, on fentanyl and getting into heroin at ages that you would just go, what is going on? Yeah. Right. And, and it's like, look for stuff. 
You know, I think when we talk about, you know, especially your close circle, your family members, mm-hmm. your spouse, girlfriend, whatever the case is, I think in some of those situations, they too are blinded by emotion, so they can't see the signs. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't think that, for example, I'll use my wife as an example. Mm-hmm. I don't think for a second she chose to ignore the symptoms. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that's not who my wife is. Mm-hmm. We've been married for over 23 years, and she's been through hell. Mm-hmm. My kids have been through hell. You know, she's the one that's there when I wake up in the middle of the night screaming and crying, you know. Um, and that takes a toll on her too. Mm-hmm. And I think that with all that emotion and all that love and they want to care for you, they want to try to fix it, and they have no idea what to do, I think they themselves get so blinded by everything that's happened yeah, or happening in front of them, and they can't see the signs. So they, you know, their mind says, no, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. They're just having a bad day or whatever the case is. So I, I, I really think I want to believe that in some of those situations, it's not that they're choosing to ignore it or they're afraid to acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. They legitimately can't see it because they, too, are going through their own emotional battle with what's happening. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, we don't talk about enough either is the support for law enforcement officers, firefighters, you know, people in emergency services. I'm nothing without my wife. Nothing. I would never have accomplished a fraction of what I've accomplished without her support, Mm -hmm. ever. And for what she's been through, I don't know how she hasn't dumped me in the desert. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I really don't. Yeah. Um, you know, she's she's incredibly strong, and and I know that this has affected her, mm-hmm. you know, and it still does. What support do we have for, for that half of the equation? You know, there isn't a lot of support. It's available but not pushed as much. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some – there's so many resources that are available. You just have to reach out. Yeah. It's such an incredible perspective on that on what you just covered because I, I myself really wasn't thinking about that yeah. much at all, but you got to really take into consideration your small group and who's with you because they are going through it with you. Yeah. Like I, I, you know, it's, it's really something to think about and having support for everybody in that, in that kind of situation is really important. It is. And I don't know of anything. I couldn't tell you, I couldn't list anything for you or tell you any resource to deal with that at this time. And, do, do you have some that maybe we could cover and on the you show? You know, a lot of resources that are available to, especially first responders, mm-hmm. um, those same resources are available to spouses okay. um, and family members. Okay. Um, you know, they use a different tactic because, you know, they're not seeing, you know, um, the dead child, yeah. but they're dealing with the aftermath. Mm-hmm. You know, they're dealing with when I come home and, and I'm crying or if I, you know, it got to a point where I would call my wife in the middle of the night when I was on shift mm-hmm. and she knew if I called, you know, I, the first thing out of my mouth is, I'm okay. I just need to talk to the kids. And she would go wake the kids up, and I would just need to tell them I love them. And that was good because yeah. I just had a bad kid call or I had a bad whatever, and I just needed to tell them I love them, and then I could manage the rest of the emotion and get through the rest of the shift. you know. But that takes a toll on them, and my kids see what happened to their dad. My my wife, you know, obviously sees what happened to her husband. Mm-hmm. My kids are older now, so they know what happened. Yeah. Um, it's tough. You know, part of the parent in me wants to shield them from it because it's scary. And, mm-hmm. um, but the other part of me as a parent wants to educate them and to, to bring them up in an environment to know that it's okay to cry. It's okay to be emotional. It's okay mm-hmm. to struggle. It's okay to do these things. It's not okay to do what I did. 
you know, we need to take the steps to prevent getting to that point. Um, and that's really the focus that all of us should be taking, you know, mm-hmm. in our professional and personal lives. Yeah. You know, we just got to be compassionate and be understanding. And um, I don't know what you're going through and I don't need to understand it. Mm-hmm. I just need to know that it's bothering you and you need help. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When you were going through <clears throat> what you were going through, I know that you had, you had hit on the caffeine and, and trying to stay awake and stuff like that. Was there anything else you were trying methods you were trying to cope through that time other than the caffeine? And I was staying, I was just trying to stay occupied. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately I didn't go the drug route. Um, that's a very common route for people in that situation. Yeah. Um, I've always been afraid of <laughs> that path, you know, partly because of how and where I grew up, I was surrounded by it. And then obviously in this career field, you see the aftermath of it. So fortunately for me, I never once even thought about going that direction. Alcohol, different story. Mm-hmm. Um, there would be times, you know, that I would end up at the local bar, you know, not too far from my home, and I'd be struggling and be spiraling, and I'd just go there. And I would walk there or whatever, and I would just start ordering shots. Wow. And just one after another, one after another, and I'm just chugging them. And I'm crying. And so if you picture me, <laughs> big guy at a bar, you know, just crying and just downing these drinks and the, and the you know, the nice staff would just be like, are you okay? What's going on? And I'm just like, I'm just trying to drink until I can't hear this kid screaming anymore. You know, and then they start crying. And then, um, you know, it's, that was one method I used to cope, mm-hmm. but it didn't help. Mm-hmm. I mean, something like that is, is only going to make it worse. It numbs it temporarily. Yeah. And then you pay for it at the end. It's just not the answer, you know. And it's and it's easy to be hypocritical and be like, "Don't do that," you know. Um, but that's what I did sometimes. I wasn't doing it daily. I wasn't, you know. It seemed to be at the height of my emotion if I was really spiraling. I mean, there was one time where I'm sitting there and I'm just struggling and, and it's just starting to go down downhill fast. Mm-hmm. And in my therapy sessions, one of the things they they talk about is being grounded, right? So. In the beginning, when we do um, EMDR, which is a, a light technique they use to to help uh, mitigate some of your PTSD symptoms, um, we find a calming place. You know, for me, it's always the forest. We're a big hunting family. I love being out in the woods. Nice. And so I picture myself in the forest. There's a, a cool moisture in the air. I can smell the trees. I could feel the ground. And that was always my safe place. Mm-hmm. So if things in conversation and therapy or whatever else would start to come up, I have to stop myself and be like, okay, go to my, go to my safe place, mm-hmm. try to relax, um, and, and you know, get past this. Well, I did that one time, and I could hear this kid screaming. So, in my brain, I'm trying to put myself in this position where it's my safe place in the forest and this pine trees, yeah, because I'm I'm getting away from this kid screaming in my head from mm-hmm. from you know the kid that was killed, and. Uh, Pretty soon my safe place is contaminated with this kid's screams. And so now I'm in this forest in my brain and this kid's screaming all around me and I can't see him. I just keep hearing the, hearing the screams and it's just deafening. And you go down this, this emotional mind path and your body just kind of starts to shut down. Um, you know, those are the times where I derail. And so the, the key is for me to find those moments and triggers and symptoms before that happens mm-hmm. to, to try to intervene. Um, and it's definitely gotten a lot better over the years. You know, I don't think it's ever going to be perfect, but yeah. um, 
alcohol was a bridge for me at times, but I always paid for it <laughs> one way or the other. Yeah. You know, it was never the answer. Um, all it did was get me to a point where I just couldn't even think about anything, um, you know, which was not healthy either. So um, it, it's it's hard. And, and finding the people that you can rely on is probably the most beneficial to, to anybody in that situation and lean on them. Yeah. You know, and, and you just have to be open and honest no matter how bad it is. And that's hard. It's hard. We're prideful people. Yeah. 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 So fortunately, I'm over that hump, and you know, I don't, I don't have any secrets. <laughs> I'll tell you every emotion I have. Um, yeah. But it's funny because I, when I started flying, you know, most people don't call a helicopter for band aids. You know, you're you're getting critical patients. Yeah. Um, you have less immediate direction than you would say in an ambulance. Mm-hmm. You know, um, your scope of practice is much broader. You're flying with a nurse. You know, and you have um, different training and and uh, a much larger toolbox, so to speak, than you do do on the ambulance. <clears throat> and uh, so I just restarted stacking trauma. <laughs> I left one one library of trauma for another. And um, I was flying one day and, and uh, had a really bad flight. And halfway through my shift, I'm just like, I can't do this anymore. Called my boss and and went home, and I was so shaken up, it took me six hours to drive home. And it was, I, li- I, wor- I lived 90 minutes away. Wow. I just kept having to pull over because I just couldn't drive. And uh, took a leave of absence and, you know, had some long conversations with my family and did some soul searching myself and <laughs> decided that, you know what, 26 years is enough, and I'm done. So didn't go back. But I needed something to fill my time because – to your point, when you talk about people retiring and they don't last long, yeah. In this industry, we're very purpose-driven. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a purpose uh, on the truck. You have a purpose in your squad car out patrolling. Yeah. You know, people need us. When you retire, you don't have that anymore. Your family still needs you, and in, in that context, it's still there. But in your professional context, you spent your career helping people, fixing problems. You know, and some pretty hefty problems. Mm-hmm. And now you don't have that. So now, you, you, you know, for me, I felt unnecessary. Um, I've always enjoyed woodworking, you know, my whole life. And I, I would dabble in it here and there. And so I started doing woodworking, woodworking again. And I noticed that within a couple of months, my nightmares were cut in half. From the woodworking? From woodworking. Because I had actually started woodworking before mm-hmm. I left the, the flight line. Uh, but I noticed that working with wood and, you know, building these things and, and that was kind of zen for me, so to speak. And it really helped me find this inner calmness that I needed. And mm-hmm. it literally cut my nightmares in half wow. almost instantly. And, you know, when I left flying, my wife and I had a conversation and I said, I, I think I want to do this woodworking on a more serious level because it's really helping me. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy it, you know, and it's it's not stressful like you're dealing with people's emergencies. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just helping my nightmares. And my wife, you know, I could I could go home today and say I want to build a spaceship and she would support it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, she's she supports me no matter what. That's awesome. Um, you're a lucky man. She 
recognized the benefits of what was going on, and, mm-hmm. and she was all for it. She's like, whatever I can do to support this, like, let's let's do it. And so that's what we did, and did a bunch of research, and you know, um, started building my shop in the house, and Desert Sawtooth Design was born. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. So uh, that's awesome. I love it. I enjoy it. It's uh, you know, it's still we run it as a business, so there's still the stresses of that, but you know, the stress of that comparative to you know, hey, if you don't do something in 30 seconds, this person's going to die. Yeah. <laughs> Those are no two different levels all. of stress. Yeah, yeah just a little yeah. bit. Yeah, <laughs> that's like comparing Kool-Aid and tequila. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, so, yeah, I started doing the woodworking, and it, uh, I love it. Well, I'm really glad that you found a positive coping, you know, strategy, yeah. and, and it's turned into something that, because now, again, you are helping people. Cause, you know, everybody needs woodwork stuff done. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, <clears throat> It's like really, really in, reinstalled that yeah. purpose thing that was kind of taken away right. from it. And I'm glad you covered the the purpose thing because that kind of correlates with when people leave their careers and they retire. That purpose is it's gone. So it's like, yeah. well, what else do I do now? You know, and I you, it, it sounds like it's very important that people find something else to keep their mind strong yeah. and going and purposeful. Because otherwise, I mean. Uh, I, I've seen it personally with people I know. It just seemed like that alcohol became and and celebrating became something that they would do all the time, and it just starts to wear them down. And yeah, so it's a challenge. I you know, yeah. I think in general people themselves need some kind of purpose, whatever that purpose is, mm-hmm. and you just got to find it. And you know, if we sit back and think about it, analyze it. You know, I'm surrounded by purpose. I got my kids. I got my wife. You know, and some will say, well, that's your purpose. Mm-hmm. Well, in some respects, that's an obligation more mm-hmm. than a purpose. You yeah. know, I'm obligated as a husband, as a parent. Very true. Um, and, yeah, of course, they give me purpose, but it's it's not the same kind of purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, I need purpose for myself. I need to feel like I'm needed and I'm useful and I'm contributing mm-hmm. um, to whatever it is. And I, and I think that's important for people who retire especially out of emergency services, because we've spent our professional career full of purpose. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, it's gone. And, you know, the first couple of weeks, like, oh, yeah, I'm retired. This is amazing. And then you're like. <laughs> it's only so many rounds of golf you can play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I am so terrible at golf. Ditto. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love to go with people who are so serious because I suck so bad. I just frustrate them. And. I get pleasure of that. <laughs> I'm like, just slow him down. It's just a game. Relax. Yeah. You're not. You're not yeah. on the PGA you here. Get dude. a scholarship. Relax. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Get some big let check. Me, yeah. Let some me green buy jacket. Beer. Yeah. Just yeah. Relax. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, you uh, know, all my buddies are really good. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I stopped I, being friends with those kind of people. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm the guy that shows up to like. That when they need like a confidence booster. Yeah. <laughs> oh, David's here. <laughs> we'll just crush him. I'm the house hitter. I'm the house hitter. <laughs> the house could be behind me and I would figure it out and I'll hit that house. It's I, got a very distinct sound when you hit a house. Yeah. Golf ball. And then the panic, like, and then I'm like, eh, you moved into a golf course. What do you expect? <laughs> There's going to be people like me. Yeah, all the I never time. understood that. <laughs> I never understood why you would want to live right next to golf course. Yeah. It just makes no sense. Yeah. You're going to get hit. Yeah. Might, might be actually physically get hit with a ball while you're outside. <clears throat> sitting by the pool. Yeah. So. You know, when we talk about PTSD and mental health, um, I think if I could leave, you know, the listeners with, with one last thought on that topic is 
since that incident uh, in 2011, so many things of substantial importance have happened in my life that I would have missed if I had died that day. Um, my kids learning to drive, graduating high school. My oldest son went on to be a professional paintball player. Um, you know, just all, all these things and all these vacations and memories that I've made since that day in 2011 would not have happened if I died. And when I was teaching, you know, some prevention stuff, I, I still have the bullet. And I tell everybody, you know, this is the bullet that saved my life because it really was that turning point of someone, some divine thing saying, not yet. Not yet. You got more to do here, buddy. Yeah. I'm yeah. not done messing with you yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got some more game to play. Yeah. And I would show pictures in my presentation of trips and pictures of me and my kids and things that we've done. None of those pictures would exist if I died. And so the people that are listening and, and you know, hope maybe they're identifying with some of this and like, you know what? <laughs> I'm struggling. I just want you to take pause, take a deep breath, look around you, and I know it's so impossible to see right now, but I promise that you are surrounded by things that are worth living for. You just can't see it yet. Reach out, get some help, and help somebody guide you back to that vision because it's there. It's, it's, it's not the answer. Thank you for that. Yeah. I think the stuff you're doing right now is part of the plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the divine plan, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm pretty successful woodworker. I still got all my fingers. Yeah. So That's good. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it stays that way. Good for you. Yeah. I, I've had a couple incidents in the <laughs> kitchen with knives. So I'm like. My wife's not allowed to use knives. She is a knife magnet in her hands. I don't oh. know how many times over the years she's cut her, you know, running a hardware store. She's always using box openers and stuff. Mm -hmm. And my wife's tough, man. I, we were moving T-Post and we had horse property and uh, we were moving pretty rapidly and she had leaned over the, the wheelbarrow that we were putting the T-Post in mm -hmm. and I was moving and I clocked her right across the side of the face with a T-Post. <laughs> this is a this is a steel T-Post. Yeah. And I didn't like tap her. I clocked her. Like, boom. And she stood oh. up and just looked at me and I was like, I, I don't know if I should run. Like, I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> what I'm did gonna, you do? I'm going to die right now. I was like, oh my gosh, are you okay? Yeah. And, uh, it's, you know, that's been a, a kind of a, a point of humor in our, in our marriage since then, you know, she will have a disagreement and, you know, back at then I would, I would just go out and bring a T-post in and put it in the corner and not say anything. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, she's tough. Yeah. Um, but she's, yeah, she doesn't do well with knives. She cuts her hands open all the time. Yeah. No, I, I totally, yeah. I can, I can bond with her on that. <laughs> I recently took over cooking more you know oh. my wife had a she has like a really long stretch you know, they're short staffed at her work right mm. shocker right in these times but, everywhere um she's had this ongoing <clears throat> onslaught of overtime that just keeps going and going so i took the role of starting to cook more when, and she eats my food so thankfully uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's good thanks for that but uh yeah yeah there was a week i probably had like four or five cuts on my hand <laughs> it was all messed up just from <laughs> So, yeah, but I, I'll get off my soapbox on that. No, but, uh, it's, it's important. Yeah. Knife safety is just as important. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning. Yeah. 
Hey, so are you still kind of teaching this stuff? Are you reaching out to any agencies or anything this time? Like if somebody reached out to you and wanted you to come talk. If, if somebody is interested, 100% yeah. I would do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, I've been pretty disconnected from the fire service since my retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, but without question, if somebody, anybody in any field, I, I don't care. I will always share my story with anybody who will listen. Okay. Always. Okay. Because to me, it's that important. Mm-hmm. And I've had people reach out to me after and just break down and say, I was going to kill myself tonight. And now I'm not going to, <laughs> you know, to me, like that's worth it every day of the week. So there will never be a time where I'm not willing to share my story um, because it's just, it's that important and it matters that much. We've, we're losing one is too many. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. We lose one person in any field. It's just not the answer. And there's solutions. And the thing, you know, we talked about perspective I didn't see it that way when I would transport suicidal patients. I'm just like, well, just get, get, o- when they need to go. get over it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not that bad. But until I saw the darkness and was in the darkness, and if you have not legitimately been there, mm-hmm. you'll never understand. So you just have to trust that they're in such a place that, that in their brain, this makes sense. Even logically, we know that's not the answer. Yeah. So they just, they're sick. It's a legitimate sickness. And they, they need help. So, yeah, absolutely. Any Anybody that wants to talk about it, um, I'm always down to do that. And uh, certainly if you need a really nice cutting board, I'm down for that too. <laughs> so how do they get a hold of you to reach it for your, for your woodwork? And uh, The company name is Desert Sawtooth Design. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a website, uh, DesertSawToothDesign.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. And I'm even on TikTok. Yes. Oh, I'm going to have to look you up, man. Yeah. Right uh, on. I haven't, you know, it's such a challenge to stay active with all that stuff and, you know, and still fulfill, you know, your other requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have this business not as a, as a source of income, mm-hmm. which is kind of unique because most businesses are like, I want to grow. I want to do this. Yeah. I'm like, I don't want to grow. <laughs> yeah. You know, I want to stay busy and have fun. enough to support itself mm-hmm. and just, you know, it's That's it's awesome. more like a, uh, a business hobby. Yeah, there you go. Hey, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we do we do custom orders. We do signs and cutting boards, and we've got these great bottle openers that are magnetic, and pretty much anything woodworking. Um, work, we have a full wood shop. We got a CNC machine. We got a laser machine. Sweet. So dang. Yeah. All it's, right. Uh, it's a lot of fun. All right. Well, reach out to him, uh, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure having you here. This is honestly probably one of my favorite episodes that I've done on the Now You Know podcast. Well, thank you really, so much for having me. I really appreciate the offer, and it's, uh, I always enjoy doing these things. So, Yeah. And uh, if you're interested in being on the Now You Know podcast, you can reach out to us at ltdmedia.net, shoot us an email, or if you know somebody that you want to send this way, make sure to send them to our website. We want to thank our sponsors, Copper Creek Cookies, uh, for helping us put this show together, along with Blueprint Home Services and Fresh Catering. We look forward to our next episode, and thank you.